Welcome to Tez Podagogy. My guest for this episode is Fred Oswald, Professor of Psychology at Rice University in Texas. Today's topic is whether schools should be preparing children for the world of work and how they can best go about that. Fred, hello. Hey, hello, John. Thank you for having me on the podcast here. No, pleasure. Um, it's a big question we're looking at today. Uh, it's a contentious question we're looking at today. So where do you sort of sit on this question of whether uh, schools have a role in creating workers? And if so, how much of their job is the creation of workers? And perhaps in answering the question, you might want to give a bit of background around whether you, why you're interested in this topic as a psychologist. Sure. Um, you, you know, again, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure, and I'm happy to speak to this question. Um, you know, obviously, school is a, uh, a preparatory, uh, uh, huge uh, intervention in childhood and preparation uh, not only for work but for life. And, uh, you know, in the attempt to prepare students well, there are obviously lots of uh, uh, knowledge uh, and, and skills to be developed Um many of which you see in textbooks, uh, but a lot of knowledge and skills that you don't see in textbooks, um, which have to do with uh, these so-called, uh, well, you could call them a lot of things, 21st century skills, socio-emotional skills, uh, soft skills, non-cognitive skills, and the list goes on. Um, and as we'll talk about later, the devil's in the detail as to what those skills are uh, in terms of, say, teamwork or uh, time management and things like that. Um, what's got me interested in this area is um, uh, my lifelong work uh, to date. <laughs> Hopefully I'll live a lot longer, but in the last 20 years, um, I've done work on both the uh, educational testing side of things and the employment testing side of things, um, usually in terms of selection. So college admissions, and um, employee testing in, in, in the domain of personal selection, and then uh, military testing when there's uh, selection classification issues involved. So um, have test, will travel is my motto, <laughs> and um, that's got me interested in a wide range of uh, constructs in terms of what are we measuring. And uh, I've dealt, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a generalist in a sense, but I, I've I've dealt a lot with these uh, soft skills, socio-emotional skills lately. Um, I'll stop there for now. We can uh, appreciate what your thoughts for other questions. And I think um, what might be interesting there is to, to draw out some of the, the comparisons or differences, I guess, between what schools are testing currently in the States and elsewhere and what companies value, I guess, in, in the way they're testing uh, new recruits. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> in some ways, it's hard to know um, because not all uh, skills assessment and understanding is, is standardized, and there's a need. Um, I think that uh, people are beginning to realize that at broader levels, such as workforce commissions and um, educators or, or institutions working with companies, to coordinate these measures with one another. Um, and, um, you know, I think, I think that's driven by uh, something of an illusion and something of a reality that deserves exploring. So, and that would be a so-called skills gap. So the skills gap refers to this idea and, and partial reality that um, schools, institutions are not producing the type of students that 
organizations want. And in particular, that gap often is portrayed in terms of these soft skills. So we don't have um, the complaint would be that um, organizations don't have uh, job applicants in large enough numbers anyway, who possess the types of uh, teamwork and self-management skills um, and leadership skills, um, depending on the level at which you're hiring, uh, that an organization would like to have. And like I said, that's a partial reality, and I think the data would, would bear some of that out. But I think it's part illusion as well because um, there are a variety of reasons. But one is that um, if you survey organizations and ask them what, what, what they want, um, it turns out they want everything. Yeah. But, you know, there's, there, there's some demand characteristic, and it's, and, and it's, not, a, it's not really a, a, a problem of measurement. It's, it's a reality that if you can get more with less, you'll, you'll try and get that. Um, so in that sense, you see a gap in the data that may not may or may not be real. But I do think some of it's real. And I think, um, again, the devil's in the details as to what gaps are important to organizations and, and to institutions and, and then how to coordinate those uh, supply with demand, so to speak. And there's a, I mean, the, the comment from teachers in this country, at least quite often, is, you know, the companies or the, the business organizations want a, f a, f a final product and actually they're, they're sort of um, removing their own role in, in training people. They 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 say mm -hmm. the school should have already trained these people for us. I mean, do you find that working with organizations? Do they recognize their own uh, responsibilities in times of getting those soft skills in the people that they employ? I think so um, in a couple of different ways. Um, you know, I... I think um, there's the knowledge that um, organizations shape uh, employees, and, and there's the hope for that. So a job applicant coming into an organization should be prepared with some basic skills, but also I guess one of those skills that's desired is to be open to the new organizational environment. So every, every employee is going to... Um, going to go through some kind of maturity and development in an organization and organizations um, tend to be mindful of that and um, try to think about what what skills can be developed again it, it, it every organization can be more mindful and more systematic about what gets developed and and what to do about that and every organization also should think about which I think is inherent in your question um, whether a particular um, situation is more relevant to selection um, of the applicant versus training in the organization. So to the extent there's a trade-off or a balance there, you know, some organizations might need to lean more toward training uh, where a consultant, I guess, would come in and say, um, look, you're, you're weighing too heavily on, on selection and dependence on the schools to prepare the applicant. You should be really supplementing that in a good way with, you know, the, the types of things you want to do in the organization. You can't expect certain things to come out of, of schools. Other organizations may benefit, actually, from greater selection and, and greater use of um, standardized measures to get at these um, 21st century skills to say, you know, you're, you're lacking in, in some of these some of these applicants are coming through that are um, could be better in terms of their teamwork or their conscientiousness or their time management. And maybe 
rather than trying to divine that through a subjective uh, interview, which can be inconsistent across applicants, why not try to have more structured forms of measurement? And no, no selection procedure is perfect, um, and people are always trying to game the system, for instance. But uh, there's data-driven uh, evidence showing that these measures do provide some value to organizations, and they also provide value to the uh, job applicant because no applicant uh, should want to be in an organization that is a, a really bad fit. Um, they, they might make some money in the short term, but uh, it can provide some uh, pain in the long term as, as their turnover tends to be higher. Mm. Do you think, if we deal with this, the soft skill side of things in a moment, do you think that you know, in this country, we often get calls from the business organizations say, oh, you're teaching them too many facts, you're teaching them too much academic content mm-hmm. and not enough uh, soft skills, if, if you like. Is that, a, is that academic knowledge and that maybe facts-based learning that irrelevant to the, the business world, or, or do they actually want some of that too? I think, um, I, as a professor, I guess I'll say it's an empirical question yes. that um, we need to gather more data and, uh, and, and do more research to understand uh, the balance that is happening in schools and the translation of that balance and that value to organizations. So, for example, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of effort and teamwork and uh, leadership uh, happens in classrooms and we don't necessarily recognize it Um, there might be group projects Um, i give a lot of assignments in my own classes i don't i don't give a final exam i give uh basically the ideas for uh any anxiety a student might have is uh lessened by having more uh more assignments that are uh graded um have less weight as opposed to a large final exam um, so I guess I would say the anxiety is, uh, is less, but it's extended over time uh, throughout the semester as opposed to cramming for a final exam. And the idea there, my point is um, to get students to exercise their effort to be able to manage goals and break them down into sub-goals, which is what smaller assignments do, and to turn them in on time, uh, you know, to get into that practice which obviously is important to organizations. So how much can we or should we codify what's happening in the classroom and get that to translate, I think is a research question. I also think educators are, um, to the point of your question, need to be more, um, and are being more mindful of the development of these skills in their classrooms. So for example, um, I'm at Rice University in Houston, Texas, where, we are, like many universities, focus more on experiential learning. So the idea is to engage, get, get professors to think more mindfully about group engagement and community engagement, um, which is an important skill to have in many, in many organizations. Um, and one last thought is um, I think organizations, some organizations are fortunate enough to have a wide range of applicants who are very high in in technical knowledge and job knowledge. So think of uh, maybe the Googles or the Facebooks of the world who may have plenty of uh, people with the requisite uh, programming knowledge that could take the job. Those those types of organizations have the luxury uh, to think about these other skills um, that would uh, add to 
the technically skilled applicant. But if one could also think about applicants who uh, may apply to other organizations who maybe lack some of these technical skills, but are actually great in terms of teamwork and and uh, and uh, time management and so on. And so it's not necessarily a trade-off in the world. Um, often they're compatible with one another that you gain the technical skills because you're able to work in groups and you're able to uh, get assignments done. So they're not incompatible. But if one had to have a trade-off, I mean, sometimes Sometimes you have to think about the particular organization and the types of applicants that are coming to them. So combine that with whether it's a selection issue or a training issue, and you have a lot of things to think about. Mm, definitely. And so if we do look yeah. at those 21st century skills or non-cognitive skills, or they, they, they have many, many labels, and uh, journalism is, yeah. my own profession is guilty of, of labeling them, you know, trying to simplify, I guess, what, what these skills might be. Um, mm -hmm. How many of these skills are are sort of measurable or um, concrete? Because in this country we have a, quite a divide. You know, you say twenty first century skills, half the people will you know get right behind you on that and say yes, this is definitely something we need to do, and half the people will ridicule you and say there's no such thing as twenty first century skills. These are just they're, they're just core knowledge of what you need to function in a society. We've always needed a bit of group work. We've already always needed communication skills, for example. So. How do mm -hmm. we begin? I guess there's a two-part question there: is how real are non-cognitive skills, and if they are real, how measurable are they? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I guess first I could I could talk about um, a couple of pieces of research I've been involved in with uh, testing companies in the U.S. So I've worked with uh, the College Board uh, for at least six years, um, maybe eight, if I think about it. Um, and then I worked with uh, ACT. I continue to work with them. Uh, the other, another big testing company uh, in terms of standardized tests from uh, K-12 and, and beyond. Um, and, and both companies are very interested in measuring uh, 21st century skills. Um, the College Board, uh, when I was doing research with them, we, we developed a model that largely included these 21st century skills. We reviewed the educational literature. We interviewed uh, folks at our own institution and beyond who were, uh, you know, the, uh, whether it was professors or administrators or the health center or RAs or senior students who, who didn't necessarily have the highest GPAs, but by virtue of being a senior, they, they survived and they didn't drop out. And so they showed some persistence. And so we wanted information from them as well. And so we uh, gathered all this information, pieced it um, into dimensions and clustered them. We, uh, and I, let, me, let me mention also, we, we took college mission statements, a large set of college mission statements and said, look, if you really believe what you're saying, then let's take your mission statements, break them down and categorize them along with this other information and see where, see where those fall. Okay. And so we ended up with a lot of uh, 21st century skills. So knowledge certainly came out. So that was, that was the cognitive area that, of course, you need to learn something and get your degree. But then there were lots of other dimensions, such as um, proactive uh, learning, uh, so being engaged in your materials and going above and beyond what you're taught um, as as a as a skill, um, leadership came out, ethics, uh, multicultural appreciation, 
um, all, all these dimensions were, there were 12 dimensions in total, and, uh, and we then developed measures around them. And so, long story short, um, the measures could deserve further development, but what we did find in longitudinal data predicting GPA four years out is that um, the measures we developed um, predicted uh, GPA above and beyond um, the some standard measures of knowledge and uh, even personality. Um, these measures added to that prediction um, consistently and, and, and maybe surprisingly for GPA, which is more of a knowledge outcome. In other words, the idea would be that these 21st century skills were essential to the final outcome of GPA. We also looked at um, other types of outcomes like uh, commitment to your university or satisfaction uh, with the university. And, and these skills predicted that as well. And one could imagine that satisfaction and, and commitment is necessary to, uh, as part of the persistence factor, to get to that GPA. So there's what, kind of a larger GPA, model sorry? involved. What is GPA oh, sorry, great, great, great point average. Uh, yeah. Okay. So you could, you yeah. actually, you pinpointed 12 essentially soft skills, uh, you created a measure for them, and those measures were accurate in predicting outcomes for these, uh, for, for these students in terms of their grades, but also their, their long-term sort of uh, employment and things like that. Yeah, we, we did not look in the employment setting, actually, but there, there are other pieces of data that do speak to that, that um, conscientiousness, for example, is a personality characteristic that consistently predicts across uh, employment settings above and beyond uh, job knowledge. And, you know, at a rational level, one might expect that to be true, that um, you not only have to know how to work, you have to show up on time and you have to pay attention to details and you have to follow through on the goals that you set for yourself. Uh, but like I tell people who are um, skeptical of psychology and ask me whether we're just uh, confirming the obvious, um, what I say is that what's important is the contours around the sort of idea that if you work hard, you will get ahead or you'll achieve your outcomes. What are those outcomes? How do you define them? And, and to what extent is the relationship that your common sense suspect actually true? And does that relationship differ across different types of people and settings? Those are the types of issues that um, psychologists and educators are working together on. Um, and uh, I'd be happy to talk about more of those collaborations uh, when you know, on future questions. What, what would you call them specifically 21st century skills? What, what term do you sort of uh, prefer? Are these skills that are necessarily new to the, the era we live in, or are these skills that have always sort of been needed uh, for, for you know, a successful adult life? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, you know, the labels have uh, percolated as as new, um, relatively new. Um, you know, the 21st century is relatively new, but the constructs um, are have been around for a long time, and the concern for uh, students uh, being successful and in, in the world and and due to these soft skills, due to these 21st century skills. That's been around for a while. So, so what is new is, is an important question. I, I think um, a couple of things I'll point to are, are new. 
Um, on the work side, what's new is technology, right, and, and internationalization. And the question is, as these disrupting forces uh, happen in the world of work, as they are now, how is it going to shift the relative weight being placed on um, these, these 21st century skills? So perhaps um, with automation, um, to the extent a job is not uh, being replaced, or actually even if it is being replaced, how much are 21st century skills required? So, for example, you know, a, a job may require, have required some essential uh, technical skills, but to the extent that can be automated, then maybe what uh, a person is doing is monitoring those systems and dealing with customers and coworkers and engaging in more social uh, behaviors that then would call upon these skills. I guess or a good example job of that is, is, is a school receptionist now where most schools in this country, well, many of the schools in this country will have an electric login, but you still have a receptionist there who you have a chat with and who is there uh, to welcome you. And there's a different, their role has shifted from designing you in. The technology has taken that part of the role. Exactly, exactly. Or your, your doctor who is getting um, assistance from an intelligent agent. So the the automated system may not dictate what a, a, a prescription is uh, in the end, but offers the doctor some hybrid assistance that takes some of the um, cognitive load off of the doctor so that the doctor can focus more on the information and how that works in the social interaction with the patient and his or her expressed needs. So that the, the, the role changes um, to the extent that jobs are not being replaced. And when jobs are being replaced, there's, there's the notion that um, more service-oriented um, businesses are, are hiring, and um, those require greater social skills and uh, these, these uh, so-called 21st century skills. So it's not that these, these skills are specifically useful now, it's that they're more useful now because of the onset of the technology. That's what I would say. I wouldn't say that there are new skills happening here, um, by and large. Um, they just are receiving more emphasis. Although I, I will say that maybe, maybe some of the skills, the way they express themselves, could be somewhat different today. For example, if you're, if you're in a virtual chat room, there might be different uh, behaviors and different um, uh, types of interactions that you wouldn't have in a typical setting. Uh, so for example, I know in a chat room, like if, if you have a group chat and you have say nine people on a grid in front of you, um, like the Brady Bunch, I don't know if I'm yeah. dating, my, dating myself here, but um, the, uh, the idea then would be that you could, you could actually see very quickly whether nine people are paying attention to you in a way that you really can't do in, in person. It'd be very hard to attend to nine people's uh, visual reactions. So I think, I think that could, you know, that may not be the best example, but it, it adds, adds the idea that maybe these skills have some difference uh, with the onset of technology and the way jobs are changing. And, you know, whether, uh, what are the implications for education I suppose that, um, you know, one could engage in those sorts of interactions at school just to build up the skills and to make, in some sense, to make work more uh, realistic in the minds of students. Um, not that they should always be thinking about uh, work outcomes at school, but um, at least to uh, 
have them accommodate to uh, what companies are are um, the way companies are typically running. And I guess on, on that note, then is is how teachable these schools are. How how far are they mm-hmm. natural dispositions, and how far can we teach them? Right. Well, that that is truly ongoing research. Um, and in the last few years, there have been some uh, promising interventions. Um, you know, in in research, nothing. Nothing is definitive, which can be uh, frustrating to some, but it keeps uh, professors at work yes. <laughs> and working. And uh, uh, but we have um, been developing interventions that we hope, um, you know, get students uh, to improve their uh, non-cognitive skills or 21st century skills. So, for example, I have a colleague who's working with the World Bank. Um, and she's developing an intervention. Her name is Kali Trzniewski at, at University of California, Davis. And she is about to launch an intervention um, with the World Bank and um, for students in Indonesia. And the idea is to um, have students engage on a, on a daily basis in uh, these uh, interventions called growth mindset interventions. Mm-hmm. And the research around growth mindset is uh, promising. Um, like any research base, it's mixed. But the idea here is that when students are encouraged to think more broadly in terms of their goals in life, their work goals in life, and to realize that um, effort is um, an investment that helps you grow, that helps your mind grow, that you shouldn't turn yourself off to the ability to grow. And, and not only that, um, in terms of this intervention, it's done as a group so that um, students can be inspired by one another and be inspired by the teacher to remain engaged in, in school efforts. And so the idea is that it's, it's not just the knowledge that's important, it's the growth mindset, the open-mindedness to engage and to realize that feedback, um, even when outcomes are not what you hope, can be uh, helpful in shaping your behavior for the future. And uh, to, to, to be more mindful of that is to, um, the argument is to create more uh, successful students through their positive engagement and persistence. So I, the, the, the uh, intervention is just starting um, at that level, but there's prior research that uh, indicates some promise. And uh, I'm hopeful this is really a, a, a successful effort that at a collective level um, leads to improvements in, in education and future work in terms of these, uh, the skills for being resilient and adapting at, at work uh, going beyond this school intervention. Do you think um, big data will be helpful in that, in the sense not only identifying weaknesses in students on, mm-hmm. on these non-cognitive skills, but also in personalising learning to improve them? Obviously, in a class of 30 kids, you're going to have very different uh, levels of those um, those non-cognitive skills, arguably a, a more differentiation in, in the skill set than academically. Um, is personalized learning, is the, is the big data in place there, is, is the functionality in place there to, to deliver uh, interventions to, the, to, to students in that way? Yeah, so um, I think the, the technology is certainly there and the uh, various forms of uh, interventions are, they're always in the works, but they are in place. And so I think one 
benefit of big data that we're seeing is <clears throat> it's not just the analytics. So there's a lot of discussion of, about, in my circles anyway, about how big data um, affords greater prediction um, when compared with traditional statistical modeling. Um, and it takes more of a, a principled approach in terms of um, making sure you're not uh, cherry picking or capitalizing on chance, but you're really trying to look at robust relationships um, so that you can be more confident <clears throat> in, in your predictions. Um, that certainly is an important part of big data. And so um, that, that, that I don't fault that focus. But there's another focus um, relevant to your question that I think is important about big data and technology, which is the idea that, and the reality that we're seeing, that big data interventions can happen in real time. So, um, you know, hopefully interventions can be tweaked to individuals based on their uh, preferences or what the data indicate is best for them. Uh, it may not be what they prefer, but it may lead to uh, more successful outcomes according to past data. All that is interesting and useful, hopefully. Um, hopefully we can personalize in that way. But another way it can be personalized that I think is uh, promising no matter what the, uh, the, the prior tweaking suggests is, is simply that it's done in real time, that when a student requires more feedback um, at a particular point in time when, or, or requires more um, some praise uh, for something done well. Um, those types of things um, can happen in real time with these uh, technical platforms. I think that's a huge asset is, is the ability to act in real time. Um, and it, 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 in the past, that was one of the benefits uh, ostensibly of in-person uh, teaching in universities was that we would offer, uh, we being me, a professor, would offer real-time feedback in class. Well, now uh, with with uh, online learning, there is this potential for real-time intervention. And so it, it makes uh, analyses a little stickier, but I think it makes, uh, more importantly, it, it offers the potential for students to get what they need when they need it. And, uh, you know, it's still a, a research question because uh, sometimes what seems personalized um, and, and also seems useful, um, but sometimes you can feel good and it's not useful. So, so we still need to collect data and understand these processes better. And we need to find the balance between um, what a, a person prefers in a learning environment and indicates the need for in real time versus what the data would be useful for in informing the user and saying, hey, you don't know that you need this, but you actually do need some information about uh, 21st century skills here. Here's, some, here's, here's a way to make your collaborations better online and, and things like that. So basically balancing the descriptive from the user and the prescriptive or proscriptive from the uh, technology is, is an ongoing process. And that shouldn't be, I, guess, I mean, to me, that sounds like a, a really useful aid for a teacher rather than a replacement for a teacher. I mean, what teacher yes. wouldn't want their 30 students all to have individualized feedback when they need it? And obviously, in a classroom situation, it's rare that you will get the opportunity to, to, provide, to provide bespoke feedback in real time to your students because the, the logistics of having 30 kids in front of you. But I guess this tool would, would, would almost allow you to do that. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, the idea and, and, and the reality as this gets implemented in practice is that these are not um, replacement tools, but rather they're enhancements. Um, just like um, we might go home after after work or after school to read books that we're interested in, and, and we pick those books. They're tailored to us in a sense. In the, in the era of modern technology, we, we can uh, uh, give ourselves greater skills and greater strengths through these uh, adaptive supplements, let's call them. Um, and and it, as you said, it gives you the type of uh, bespoke attention that uh, you, you couldn't get anywhere else, but at the same time, uh, the in-person interactions still are, are, are not replaceable um, be, be, because of the, um, you know, the, the intelligent agents are intelligent to a point. But um, there's there's always specific information you, you need from individuals. And also, uh, you know, I, I think experience matters in terms of uh, I think of myself and, and the experiences I can relate to students um, as they guide their their learning, whether it's knowledge or or teamwork and building relationships that are just not built into intelligent systems. Not yet. Anyway. And I guess my final question then is, you know, as someone who works across businesses and schools, do you think they're so far apart? I mean, do, do you think actually we're, we, as, as, an edu- as education systems, we're producing, you know, uh, adults who can be successful in work? Do you think we're, the balance is about right at the moment? Or do you think, you know, maybe the schools or the organisations are, are, are um, a little behind in where they should be? Well, I think it's, you know, the, <clears throat> I, I don't know whether I can make pronouncements about this situation, but I, I, I can say that um, I think earnest efforts are happening on both sides, so to speak, in terms of schools and business in the sense that of their own interests, right, um, that, that businesses have an interest to uh, find talent that will give them a competitive edge um, in in the worlds in which they operate. And so um, to the extent they can uh, develop that talent to their own advantage, they're, they're going to do it. And we see collaborative partnerships with businesses and institutions. Some of those investments are uh, more specific that, um, you know, technical training is a perfect example where um, in the U.S. at least um, there's a high demand for high-tech jobs that um, – do not require college education, but do require specialized training. And so businesses will partner um, with uh, community colleges and to provide that specific training and then offer the opportunities for internships and, and work. Uh, but there are also more general uh, partnerships that are not about technical training, but are more about how do we develop students who are going to be uh, leaders in organizations that are going to be able to manage complex situations, engage in critical thinking, and as their businesses change, can these students uh, operate successfully within them? So there's still the idea that this talent will come to those businesses, but it's kind of a broader and perhaps a more long-term investment to say, we need to plant the seeds. We need to have uh, a diverse workforce that is uh, engaged and and adaptive to whatever the future may hold. And and the future, as Yogi Berra said, is is hard to predict. Um, and uh, um, and and you know we make our best guesses when we're 
um, investing in specific technical training, whether you're a student or an educator or an employer, uh, you hope that that specific training will will pay off, um, assuming the world of work is not entirely disrupted. Um, and then you also hope that the general skills that are developed, whether it's knowledge or teamwork or empathy or ethics, um, will be durable, um, even if it's general training. So we're all trying to uh, make the best predictions. No doubt there are gaps between schools and businesses in coordinating. And I myself have participated in um, oh, various conferences and uh, workforce commissions, um, school districts, um, to try and bridge that gap. And I, I hope that um, those types of efforts, they may never be standardized um, but hopefully they'll gather strength and we'll learn more from our lessons and, and really uh, build greater success at the student level or the, the organization level and then, you know, collectively um, to, to society. That's a dream. I think that's a, that's a nice place to end. And, and basically, if, if we collaborate a bit more together rather than taking a pop at each other, we, we'll, we'll get a better idea of what's needed and we'll help our students be, lead more successful lives, essentially, if we just work together a little bit better. That's our hope. <laughs> Thank you very much, Fred. It's been uh, really interesting talking to you. Thank you, John. I really appreciate your time and uh, I really enjoyed this. Thanks.